passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Jude. We're going to continue our study through the book of Jude this morning. Uh, one of the things I love about our church is the fact that we, uh, we, we open a book of the Bible and then we work our way through it uh, verse by verse. And that means that we oftentimes come face to face with some challenging passages and some challenging texts. And that is certainly the case for this morning's passage. Uh, Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. And so if you open up to, to Revelation and then just take a Take a left, you'll get to it. It's just one chapter long. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 this morning. And this is a really important passage, uh, one that I think uh, really actually addresses a danger that we face here in the church quite a bit. And that is, uh, Jude talks about in these verses the danger of speaking on God's behalf. That when we speak... And we presume to speak for God. That is a very dangerous thing if we don't do it the right way. Maybe a, a better way of, of talking about what Jude is describing in this passage is that uh, he's talking about the danger of speaking, especially in areas where God himself is silent. And so uh, I think one of the reasons why this passage is so important for us today is because I think if we were to take a poll of everyone who is here this morning, those who are watching at home online, and we ask them, how many of you have heard someone say, well, God told me to do X, or God told me to, to do Y, and, and we, can, we can share those stories of all of these different things that God, uh, that people have said that God ha has told them to do, and those things will probably vary rather greatly from those things that are, that are really good, really biblical things, all the way to head scratchers at, at best, and just downright unbiblical at worst. And, and uh, even worse is when, when someone uh, tends to take the place of a prophet in another person's life. And so I've actually heard uh, a man tell a woman that he had a crush on, um, God told me that we were going to get married, and they weren't even dating at the time. And thank goodness the woman uh, was quick on her feet and said, I'll let you know when God tells me the same. <laughs> I've also heard the inverse uh, of uh, a woman just not really being interested in, in uh, the person that they were dating and, and saying, you know what, God told me to break up with you. And, th and just in case you were wondering, neither of those are personal experiences uh, from my own life. But far worse and, and far more hurtful is when someone has, uh, has said damaging things presuming to speak for God. I've had a friend who uh, had someone come up to her and prophecy over her that she would have a child within the next year. This is, wasn't even a woman who was struggling with infertility. She and her husband just weren't ready to start a family yet. I've heard people claim that God told them that they would heal someone who eventually passes away. I've heard people say that God told me to leave my spouse I've heard stories of people saying that God revealed to them what heaven was like in a dream, and then you look at what they say and what the Bible actually says about heaven, and there's very little in common. Listen, it's really easy for us to hear these claims and to laugh at some of them, to let our blood boil at other ones, but what about when a pastor 
says, well, God told me to plant this church. What about when your friend says, well, God told me that I was supposed to serve in this ministry? Or what about when you hear someone say, God told me that I'm supposed to give all my efforts to suffering and ending poverty? And all of these, they vary greatly, don't they? Some of them, biblical. Some of them, deeply troubling. And yet all of them are examples of speaking on God's behalf. See, speaking when God is silent is an epidemic in today's church. And apparently, according to Jude, it's not just the danger that we face today, but it's something that the church has struggled with since its inception. 2,000 years ago, Jude, writing to the church, found people that were claiming to speak on God's behalf, and they were wreaking havoc in the church almost from day one. And that's what Jude addresses here in verses 8 through 10. Apparently, some people in Jude's church, they, they were claiming to speak for God in a way that had nothing to do with what God had actually already said in his word. And what's worse, Jude's church seemed to be believing them, believed to take it in stride. And that's one of the reasons why Jude is, is writing this letter to them. If you don't know much about the book of Jude, I, I want to just give you a, a reminder of what Jude is about. Let's go ahead and throw that structure slide up here, because Jude is a confusing book. And one of the things that, that I think is helpful for us is to understand the structure of what Jude is saying. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at Jude verses 3 and 4, and this is Jude's main point in the letter. If you want to know what Jude is about, go back to verses 3 and 4. In, that verse, in those verses, he say, hey, there are people that are coming into the church and they're teaching this, this really problematic stuff. He actually says that they pervert the gospel. They're taking advantage of the grace of God by changing the message of the gospel. And he says, I want you to contend for the faith. And then in verses 5 through 10, he gives this first sermon about the danger that is facing the church. Last week, we looked at 5 through 8. This morning, we're going to look at 8 through 10, the second half of this sermon. And then after that, we get into a second sermon about the danger facing in the church, verses 11 through 16. And then finally, he gets kind of to his application. He says, hey, if you want to know how you contend for the faith, this is how you do it. And that's what he talks about in 17 through 23. So as you can see, what we're going to talk about this morning is... It's relying upon what Jude has already said in verses 5 through 7. That's a very structured passage. I think it breaks apart nicely into, into three rough headings um, that I'm, I'm going to use this morning. Verse 8 is, is about this misguided authority. Verse 9 is about this example that's worth following. And then verse 10 is about the danger that is facing us. See, Jude's main point, all that he's saying is I want you to contend for the true faith. Hold fast to the gospel when those who bear the name of Jesus begin to twist and warp the gospel. Hold fast to the message of truth. Last week, Jude uh, unpacked three warnings from the Old Testament. I want us to actually start by looking and reminding ourselves of, of Jude 5 through 7. Let's go ahead and, and read these verses. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains of, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
There's a lot going on in these three verses, but here are the highlights. Verse 5, Jude essentially says, and and you can see he, he focuses or emphasizes this fact of unbelief. So these people are, are, are not believing the message of the gospel. Verse 6 uh, focuses on this rebellion against Jesus' authority. So we have unbelief, verse 5, rebellion against authority in verse 6. And then in verse 7, it focuses on this judgment that awaits those who live a life of excess, a life of sensuality. And this morning's passage builds on those warnings from the Old Testament. We're going to see in these verses, Jude actually applies these warnings to a very specific situation that's facing him and the church of his day. And the same is true for us as well. This isn't something that's just applicable for Jude's original audience, but we also must be on guard against unbelief. We also must be on guard against this tendency to rebel against the authority of Jesus. We also must be on guard against this tendency to live a life of excess. And we have to listen to the message of Jude 8 through 10. So if you have a Bible, please follow along, starting in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael Contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed, but all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Would you pray with me? Father, we we thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, you still speak. And that's our prayer this morning, that you would speak to us from this passage, that you would help us to understand this admittedly confusing text. But not only that you would help us to understand it, but also, God, that it would sink down deep into our hearts. God, that we would not come away from this time just having a better understanding of your word, but that that deeper understanding of your word would lead to life transformation. That through the power of your spirit, we would increasingly be conformed into the image of your son. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to respond to the message of your word with obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and start with verse 8. I mentioned verse 8 is talking about or focusing on this misguided authority. Go ahead and look at verse 8 again. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So notice how Jude starts. He starts with this phrase, in like manner. He's reminding us of this connection between what he has already said and what he is about to say now about the dangers that are facing his church. There are apparently these people in his church who are guilty of the things that we already looked at in verses 5 through 7. They're they're guilty of unbelief, against uh, rebellion against Jesus' authority, about a life of sensuality. And verse 8 tells us that it is because they are relying on their dreams. That's a really important phrase. So here's what seems to be happening in the early church. The the root issue all the way back in verse 4. Remember this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So apparently there are these people who have entered into the church and they're saying that because grace is free, that means you are now free to do whatever you want. In fact, they would argue that if anyone ever asks you to live a life increasingly like Jesus, then they are legalists. That they're demanding too much of you. That they're asking you to earn your salvation through works rather than relying on grace. And this is what Jude has in mind when he's referring to this perversion of the grace of God in verse 4. But this isn't just a, a group of people with this faulty interpretation of the Bible. That's, that's true. According to Jude in verse 8, when he says that they're relying on their dreams, he, he's saying that they are claiming that God has revealed to them this true way of following him. That this is the real way, so pay attention to us. If you want to be a real Christian, this is how you do it. So in other words, they're claiming to speak for God. They're claiming that God has revealed to them this divine revelation. They're claiming that God has spoken to them. And therefore, their teaching, what they're saying, trumps every other thing that is written in the word of God. They're claiming to speak on God's behalf. And yet they're rejecting what God actually has said in the Bible. All that they do is rooted in this misguided authority. They claim to speak with this authority that they do not have. And because of that, they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones, as Jude says in verse 8. We'll get into the specifics of what exactly that means here in a moment. But first, can you just imagine the audacity it would take to, to claim this special place in the church? Plain and simple, this is just deadly presumption. They're, they're, they're claiming to speak for God. They're claiming to actually say what we tell you is actually more important to you than the Bible itself. Listen, there are, there are a host of problems with this type of speaking on God's behalf that we see today. I just want to focus on two. One of the problems that we see today, as with Jude's opponents, is that when they speak on God's behalf, they're doing something with the Word of God. Yes, they're, they're perverting it according to verse 4, but how are they doing that? Well, they're subtracting from the gospel. This is one of the great dangers of the church today. And sometimes people can claim this sort of misguided authority saying, well, God actually told me or God has revealed to me. But more often, people will just use different language to accomplish the same subtraction from the word of God. People will say, well, God wants me to be happy. And you know what makes me happy? It doesn't matter if it is uh, greed. It doesn't matter if it's getting drunk. It doesn't matter if it's living with your girlfriend. It doesn't matter what it is. They'll say, that makes me happy. God wants me to be happy. And so that's the most important thing. God would never stop me from doing those things. God would never ask me of that. They claim this misguided authority that my happiness rules over all and god wants my happiness more than anything else in this world and they use that to subtract from the word of god individuals do this all the time whole churches do this all the time as well they can deny the word of god they can find this misguided authority and they reject the scriptures they look at the scriptures and they see something that god has spoken in his word and they say well god couldn't have meant that 
There's no possible way God could have meant that, and so they subtract it from his word. There's another deeper problem with this misguided authority. It's the underlying assumption that when God has given us his Bible, when God has given us the spoken word, it's actually not good enough for us that his revealed word in the Bible isn't good enough for me and my specific situation. We, we, don't have, a, or we have a tendency to not trust the Bible, that we find all things for life and godliness, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so people have this tendency to look elsewhere. And I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to people in dreams, that he can't do that. I've I've heard a number of stories of Jesus at work in the Muslim world using dreams to bring people to him, but they're not authoritative. And that's not where our hope should be. It's not where we should find peace. What's notable, actually, if you look at stories of God speaking to people in dreams or God revealing himself to people in dreams, if it's it's in the line of, of the way the Bible works... It's pointing people actually to the Bible, saying, hey, I want you to, to look at this passage of Scripture, and then it will under, you'll understand. Or I want you to go talk to this person, and that person will explain the Scriptures to you. Dreams never trump the Word of God, and if they contradict what God has spoken in His Word, then we should dismiss them. We have to avoid this misguided authority of finding our greatest hope our greatest peace, the place where we find all of our trust in some place other than in God and in his word. If we, were to, if we were to sum up what this first verse here, verse 8, is asking us, it's, it's simply this, do I believe that the word of God is enough? Do I believe that the word of God is enough? Do I need more? Do I need to go somewhere else to hear what I want to hear? Do I need to go somewhere else to tell me what I want for my life? Will I go beyond the word of God? Or is God's word enough for me? There's a lot more we could talk about with that verse. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 9. Verse 9, we see this example that's worth following. It says this, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This verse has provided a lot of confusion over the millennia in the church, and it's easy to see why. It's confusing because the, the story that Jude references as though it's common knowledge is not at all common knowledge to us. It, he references it as though we would know it, but it's not found in our Bible. So what's going on here? This is probably more than you want to know, all right? I'm just going to say that right up front. This is more than you're probably wanting to know. But here we go anyway. So you can tune this out if you want to. And then when I get back to the question, make sure you tune back in. So it's commonly believed, uh, according to the early church, that Jude is referencing this this book from the first century, uh, this common Jewish book that was referred to or called the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. So two titles referring really to the same thing. And this book expands on the story of Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34 is Moses' death and his passing of the leadership of Israel to Joshua right before they enter into the promised land. This book purports to tell these secrets messages or testaments that Moses gave to Joshua right before he died in order to help him be ready to lead the people of Israel. 
And this book is, is a part of what we refer to as the pseudepigrapha, all right? So try saying that three times fast, pseudepigrapha. Uh, pseudepigrapha is a collection of Jewish books. Uh, they were written about 300 B.C. to about 300 A.D., and they're not considered to be a part of the Bible. Pseudepigrapha, if you're, if you're wondering, it, it translates, it's, it comes from two words, pseudo or, or false and pigrapha just kind of refers to inscription. So all of these books are, are claimed to be written by someone that they're actually not written by. Now, to make things even more confusing, I have a copy of the Testament of Moses. And I, I've, I've read through, I, I've skimmed through it, and this story isn't found in it. And that's because the ending of the Testament of Moses is missing we don't have any copies of it anymore. So we actually don't have a, a, a copy of what Jude is referencing here as he talks about this arguments between the archangel Mo, uh, Michael and uh, the devil himself as they're arguing over Moses' body. But I think it's, it's relatively straightforward what is being described here. So apparently this is, this is what... The Testament of Moses described as it expanded upon Deuteronomy chapter 34. After Moses dies, the devil wants to disgrace the body of Moses. Remember, Moses is God's chosen leader, but Michael, the leader of heaven's armies, the, the, the leader of the angels, refuses to let him do so. And this argument breaks out between this angel and this fallen angel, But even in that argument, Michael refuses to pronounce judgment upon the devil. Now, why is that? Well, verse 9 actually gives us the answer. Jude 9, again, I'm just going to read an excerpt here. Why is it? It's because Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. The word presume here is crucial for understanding what is taking place. Michael refuses to pronounce judgment upon the devil himself because he refuses to go an inch further than what God has already said. That God has been, at this point, silent to the future facing the devil and his legions of fallen angels. And so even though he could probably figure out what is going to happen... He remains silent because God was silent as well. Michael simply just refuses to be, go beyond the word of God. I don't know about you, but that's just astounding to me to, to consider this. You would think that if there was anyone in all of creation who would be able to presume to speak for God, it would be Michael the leader of the angelic hosts, and yet Michael knows his place of authority. He knows how God has created him, what God created him for, and he refuses to leave that box. He refuses to say anything beyond what God has created him for. Even if that means pronouncing a judgment, a very logical judgment, upon the devil. And so all he says is, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, this is God's job. God's going to take care of this. I'm leaving it in God's hands. Do you see what Michael is doing here? Do you see how he's this example that's worth following? Michael is completely 100% content 
with remaining exactly where God has placed him. That God has given him a certain level of authority, that God has given him a certain role, and he refuses to go beyond it. And this is applicable for us, not just when it comes to speaking for God, speaking when God is silent. It's really, it's really applicable for all of life. It is not our place to speak on behalf of God when God is silent. It is not my place as I get up here on a Sunday morning to contradict the Word of God with what I think is actually a better interpretation or what I think is more accurate or more relevant or more appropriate. And this applies to all of life, not just with our words. We would do well to, to follow Michael's example in recognizing that we are not sovereign, that we are not the final say in our lives, that we are not the ones who have greatest authority in our lives, but instead we are under the authority of Jesus, the sovereign one. Remember how Jude starts his letter? As he's introducing himself, he refers to himself this way, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. And yet he sees himself and recognizes that he is a servant of the king. That what Jesus asks of him, he will do. Where Jesus sends him, he will go. Jude is like Michael. He understands his place of authority, and he doesn't try to grab more for himself, but he is instead content in trusting that Jesus knows best, that he will be faithful with what Jesus has entrusted to him, and that includes in speaking God's word and also in all of life. And again, this, this verse forces us to ask ourselves a question, and that is, what about us? Am I content with the role that God has given me? Am I content with with how God has positioned me? This story provides a very sharp contrast between these two angels, two ways before us. On the one hand, we have Satan, this fallen angel who was not content with the position of authority that God had entrusted to him, but he wanted the throne. He wanted it from God. He wanted to be God, and he sought that throne. And it led to judgment. On the other hand, we have Michael, this angel who has been given a certain position of authority, just like Satan, and yet is content in trusting God with what God has entrusted to him, the role that God has for him. He knows that God has a reason for why he was created, and he trusts that God knows best. What about each of us? Are we content with the role that God has given to us? Now, before we jump into verse 10, I do want to just say, um, many people um, throughout church history have, have wondered whether Jude should be in the Bible because of this verse, because it references this story that is, um, Uh, not in the Bible. And one of the reasons why this verse has confused people over the centuries is because 
they, they look at this verse and, and say, this is a concerning verse for us. So I want us to ask, just briefly, should we be concerned about this verse? Should, should we be concerned about the book of Jude as a whole? And I just, I have three thoughts, three brief thoughts. First one is this. It is worth noting that it's not at all uncommon for the Bible to quote and reference books or literature that is not found in the Bible. And hopefully that's a little shorter than the way I just worded it. Just because the Bible references something doesn't mean that what they reference is therefore authoritative. So we see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Numbers chapter tw- uh, 21 references this book that it's re- referred to as the, books, uh, or the book of the wars of the Lord. First Chronicles refers this, to this book called the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer. First Kings references these books called uh, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel and the Chronicles of, of the Kings of Judah. New Testament regularly references non-biblical material and literature or sayings just to prove a point. So what Jude is doing here is not at all uncommon. It might be the, the oddest, but it's in keeping with how the Bible operates at times. It's, it's just standard way of, of the Bible operating. Second, and probably more important for us, is, is that Jude's illustration here is, is faithful to what we do have revealed in Scripture, that what we do see in Scripture. There's a, there's a ton of parallels, right? If you're, if you're taking notes, write this down. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 is a really powerful passage, and it mirrors what we're seeing here in this reference that Jude makes to the Testament of Moses. Many people think that the Testament of Moses was written based off of Zechariah chapter 3. The parallels are so similar that actually this phrase, the Lord rebuke you, comes from the book of Zechariah. So everything that we see here is, is profoundly biblical. Nothing contradicts the message of Scripture. In fact, it's, it's really faithful to it. And the third one is uh, some people would, would argue that Jude treats the story of Michael and the devil in the exact same way that he uh, treats these three stories from the Old Testament in verses 5 through 7. So remember verse 5, 6, and 7, Jude references these three examples from the Old Testament, and, and people would argue that, it, that Jude treats this story that we don't have in our Bible with the exact same sort of importance and authority as he does those Old Testament stories. So therefore, we would conclude that Jude thought that this book should be uh, inspired or, or authoritative or a part of the Bible. I'd say I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's the case. Jude's argument does not depend on the historicity of this book. It doesn't depend on whether this book is, or this story is true or not. Now, what Jude says in verses 5 through 7 does depend on that being true or not, because he's saying this is how God acted in the past, and you can expect God to act in the exact same way today. So verses 5, 6, and 7 need to be true. They need to be referencing something that actually took place, and and that's what Jude is doing. He's referring to these stories from the Old Testament. The same thing is is not at all the case in in this verse, in verse 9. In fact, you could argue, many people do, that he's just doing what a pastor does, giving an illustration that people would have been familiar with. He's not making any sort of claim or statement that this is a true story. 
Did Jude think it was a true story? I don't know. I'll ask him someday. But the point that Jude is making does not depend on whether this is true or authoritative. Today, we could reference the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings or any work of fiction that people are familiar with. And so it doesn't follow that just because Jude references this that we must therefore think that it should be in our Bibles. All right, let's go ahead and keep moving forward. I just wanted to mention that because uh, it's, it's a common concern throughout church history. So Jude has, has told us misguided authority, verse 8. He's talked about this example that's worth following, verse 9. Now Jude turns his attention to talk about danger, the danger that is facing us in verse 10 if we do not heed this message. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So the confusing verse, and I feel like I've said that a hundred times already this morning. Uh, and yet at its core, I think that this verse is, is really just saying two things. The first is at the, the beginning of this verse, he's, in contrast to the example of Michael, we have these people who are blaspheming what they don't understand. So that's the first thing that this verse is telling us. The second thing is that they are following their instincts, and that will lead them to destruction. So I want us to consider these two pieces in part. So the first one, that they blaspheme what they don't understand. Rather than being like Michael and saying, I'm not going to pronounce any sort of judgment upon those things that I do not know, they say, hey, you know what? We're going to blaspheme everything that we don't understand. We're just going to tear it down. We're going to say that it does not matter. And I think that this is a reference to the gospel itself. If we go back again to verse 4, this really important verse in the book of Jude, we see that they are changing the message of the gospel, and it's because it doesn't say what they want it to say. They're perverting the grace of the gospel because they don't understand the grace of the gospel. And they don't understand that the gospel calls them to live a certain way, to live a life of actually following Jesus. They don't understand that grace is not permissive, it is transformative. And they don't get that the gospel is not just this call to say that Jesus is my Savior, but also to say that Jesus is my Lord. And because they don't understand this, they just go ahead and change it. They just say, well, that can't be true because it doesn't make sense to me. And they twist the gospel to fit their own ends. And in, and in doing so, they blaspheme the Lord Jesus through their actions. They blaspheme the gift of grace that we find in the gospel by what they're doing. The issue is unbelief. They refuse to believe what Jesus says in the gospel. And instead, they choose to believe what they understand instinctively. Or, or maybe language that, that we would use is they're following their hearts. Because what God has said is so different, so hard to understand, so weird to me, so offensive to me, that instead they follow their hearts. They go with what is easier for them. Our culture tells us to follow our hearts all the time. That's terrible advice. Terrible advice. 
Why would you follow your heart when Jeremiah describes it this way? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not a good compass for your life. There are certain things that all of us want or long for or understand instinctively to use the language of Jude. That doesn't legitimize it. No wonder the call of the gospel is offensive to our hearts. No wonder that Jude warns us of the danger of following our hearts, of following our instincts, because it leads to destruction. Jude asks us another question. That question is simply this, do I trust my heart or do I trust the gospel? Do I trust my heart or do I trust the gospel? Which, which am I going to trust more? When I don't like what God's word says or I don't understand what God's word says, am I going to trust my heart or am I going to trust the gospel? There's going to be plenty of times where the message of the gospel seems odd, where it seems hard to understand, where it seems completely backwards. There are going to be plenty of times where the gospel says something I don't want to hear. Where following Jesus asks me to do something that I don't want to do. And the question that we have to ask is, do I trust my heart or the gospel more? This passage is only three verses long, but I think it is absolutely filled with meaning and significance. It leaves us with a lot to consider, a lot for us to chew on. But what does it boil down to? If each of these is like a three-legged stool or part of a three-legged stool, what is the, the primary message that Jude is trying to give to us? And I think it's simply this. Don't presume to speak when God is silent. Don't presume to speak when God is silent. And this isn't just a message about speaking on behalf of God. But this is really about our relationship to the authority of Jesus and what we find in his word. Are we going to follow the example of Michael? This archangel who refused to step out of the bounds of his authority because he so deeply trusted in and was committed to what God had revealed and spoken? Or are we going to do what we want? That when what I want clashes with the word of God, I'm going to let what I want win. Don't presume to speak when God is silent. And that's not just a message for speaking, but for all of life. I want to give just three applications or implications as we close of what this might look like. The first thing is this. I don't want us to conclude that the application of the Bible is so narrow, so specific, that we are scared to apply it to our lives today. That God doesn't have anything to say for the 21st century in the United States. This, this context that's an ocean away from the first century in Israel and in the surrounding regions. But it does mean that we have to grow in wisdom. 
We have to grow in our understanding so that we can remain faithful to the message of the gospel in our lives and how we apply it. It's one of the reasons why I love the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom and, and how we grow in wisdom. I just want to, one of my favorite sections of Proverbs is from Proverbs chapter 26. I want to read this to you because it, it, uh, it shows the importance of wisdom and not just reciting God's word. Okay, Proverbs chapter 26. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he, he be wise in his own eyes. So verse 4, don't answer a fool in his folly. And, and then you get to verse 5, the very next verse, answer a fool in his folly. And, and what are you supposed to do? How are we supposed to understand this? And this shows us the importance of wisdom in how we apply God's word, that there are going to be times where you need to speak up, that you need to reproach a fool because he's going to think that he's right by your silence. And then there's other times where you just stop, stop arguing with them. It's just pointless. And it takes wisdom to understand the difference between those two and how to apply God's word to the specific situations of our lives. Where does wisdom come from? Well, wisdom comes from actually knowing God's word, right? At the heart of this charge to don't speak for God when God is silent is this recognition that we actually have to know what God has said. We have to know what God has said so that we can know what God has not said as well. How can we be faithful to God's word if we don't actually know it? How can we discern when someone says, God has told me X, Y, and Z? How can, we, how can we respond to them if we don't actually know what God's word has said? If we would avoid this deadly presumption in our lives, then we have to understand and know what God has actually said in his word. That's the first application. Second one is this. Jude tells us not to speak when God is silent, but the inverse is true as well. That when God has spoken, we must also speak. Romans 10 talks about how the gospel transforms and changes lives, and yet it also says, how will they know if they have not heard? The implication, of course, is that someone needs to speak the words of God to them. This message is, is not saying that we should be silent, that we should never speak on God's behalf. That's what I'm doing right now. That's what I do on Sunday mornings, that I get up and I speak on God's behalf. I'm not sharing my opinions. I'm not sharing wisdom from the 30-some years of my life. If that's what I was doing, then you should just leave. We're called to speak on God's behalf, where God has spoken. And God willing, that's what I do on Sundays. I, I just stand up here and I open up the Bible and, and I presume to speak on God's behalf, but hopefully it's just because I'm saying what God has already said in his word. God has spoken to us. That's why the Bible is such this unfathomable gift. And he asks us to speak his word to one another as well. 
that we use scripture to encourage one another. We use scripture to exhort one another. We use scripture to comfort one another. Let me give you an example. Which of these two is a greater comfort? For you to come up to someone who is grieving and mourning and tell that person, you know what, I had a dream the other day, and in that dream I saw you smiling, and I saw you at peace, and there's sun shining down on you, and I heard this voice just say, it's going to be okay. Is that more comforting than to read the words of lamentations to them? And hear God say this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good for those to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart. God has given us his word to comfort one another. And so while we, we don't presume to speak when God is silent, we also must speak when God has spoken. One final implication of this. We've got we to recognize that Jesus is Lord, and I'm not. That Jesus is Lord, and I am not. I think one of the most powerful parts of this passage is this recognition that there is not just this danger to presume to speak when God is silent, but also to presume to take authority that is not ours, that God has not entrusted to us. And that's what Michael refuses to do, right? Michael refuses to step outside of the authority that God has given to him. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows who he is, and he knows that there is this massive gap between the two, and he is completely comfortable and okay with living in that gap. I'm not going an inch beyond what God has entrusted to him of how God has created him. Do you grind against the fact that you are not in charge this position that God has, in place, has placed in you, do you want to be in charge? Do you think that God's word is only necessary for you when it says exactly what you want it to say, or it will serve your purposes to further your own agenda? Far be it from us. Jesus is Lord, and I am not. Do not presume to speak when God is silent. This is one of the greatest dangers facing our church today. We've got no business doing that. Not just with our words, but with our actions as well. Don't go beyond the word of God, but be like servants, faithful, content with what God has given us because God has given us enough. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and we ask that you help us to remain faithful to it, to not step beyond the bounds of your word, to not subtract from your word, 
that when your word rubs us the wrong way, God, that you would use that as a sandpaper to, to rub down the, the edges of rebellion from our hearts so that we can follow you more faithfully. Help us, Jesus, to be faithful servants with all that you have entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.